There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Campsite Media. What's up? I'm Matt Stanmeyer, and you're listening to Lights Out. We're doing something a little different in this episode. I've gotten a lot of questions about my reporting process and the making of the show, and I wanted to share some of that here. So I'm talking with Chris Kelly. He's the VP of content at NJ.com, and he was my editor on my first story about the Montclair Randolph game. It was published in 2019. Hi, Matt. Uh, and thank you for having me. I think anybody who who ever is privileged enough to get to be your editor uh, quickly learns that you are filled with ideas. There's there's a running list that you keep. And, and this story dates back to really one of our very first meetings when we first started working together in the beginning of 2019. And we went to dinner and you had your pitch list, which was pages and pages uh, long. And, and this one was the one that really popped. I do not have an extensive sports background. And, and in fact, you were the first and, and sort of remain the only sports writer I've ever really edited. Um, but what popped to me about that idea was it was, it was the anti-sports movie. It was the anti um you know, bad news bears triumph from behind. And this was a story about the opposite, the, the, the frustration, the guilt, the, the anger, the, the stuff that attaches to you. And I remember us talking about that at the time. And I, I just said, this is the story. And I think it proved even richer than you could have possibly imagined. Mm -hmm. And what I love about like the origin story of this podcast and the, and the story that sparked it was just like, the origin story of you and I working together, because um, I think that the idea that I presented you with about this game, like it never would have came together under a different editor because you kind of had this theatrical um, thought process. You came from a, a literature background, uh, you know, you, you covered a lot of theater and arts and creative arts and things like that. And I think in our first pitch meeting, you said, think of this story as like in cold blood but high school football. And, yeah, yeah. and I was just like, who would ever come up with that combination <laughs> in cold blood in high school football? Yeah. But I loved in cold blood. Um, and I was like, Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. And it did. Yeah. And, and when you dig into the story, you know, and we've talked about this a lot, like there's an element of, of true crime or, or horror to this story, right? Like mm -hmm. something grievous happened. 
Um, you know, it, it starts out and all you know is that this mystifying loss that should never have been a loss took place and everybody's lives have been shattered. And then, you know, it's the process of, of piecing together kind of what happened um, to, to, to get to this place. So, um, but, you know, I didn't know sports and I wanted you to find a way to write about sports and make people care about sports for people who don't really follow sports. You know, when I think of Friday Night Lights and what, what Buzz Bissinger did there or, or Moneyball and what Michael Lewis did there, um, those are great sports books if you're sports fans. But if you're like me and don't really follow sports, they're still great books. And I think that's really carried through to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. We wanted this to connect with people who didn't play sports in high school. We wanted it to be something big and significant happened to you when you were a young person and it changed the course of your life. Like, what if I went in that direction instead of this direction and how would my life be different? So that's what I think this story is really about is um, what could have been um, the choices we make, the big things that happen to us along the way and how they change and shape our lives. And um, I think that's why this is connected with people too. Do you remember when you felt like you had the story because I mean, you spent eight months, nine months, right? Report. I mean, just reporting um, before we really started digging into the editing process. Do you remember where during that process you were like, okay, this is, this is a story. I got this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do pinpoint it actually. Um, You know, luckily at, at NJ.com, we, we still employ a stable of longtime sports writers who've been covering sports since before I was born. Um, and uh, I had I knew all about the miracle at Montclair. Again, um, I had heard about it as soon as I started working at the Star Ledger. Um, but I, I solicited some advice from some of the the older high school reporters, and they said, "This is probably the game that you want to look at." And so once I got that confirmation, I made my first call to Wade Amadeo, who ended up being our, our affable school security guard, um, you know, the insider of all insiders in Montclair because I had done a story on Wade maybe like six years earlier. And so I still had him saved in my contacts. And when I called him, the first thing that he told me, the first words out of his mouth were that the quarterback um, seemed to disappear after that game and really fell on hard times and that he saw him around town in Montclair from time to time and that he's, he's really a shell of his former self. And then the second thing he told me was that the Montclair coach never coached again after that day. He was so devastated that he immediately retired and no one ever heard from him again. And I, I think I told you this at the time. I said, if, if we find not even one shred of interesting additional information, this is still like an excellent story because I had to find out what happened to the quarterback and the coach. So I think after that initial conversation with Wade, I said, I, I just knew we had something. Yeah. I remember you coming back. I think it was, it was probably early summer of that year when you came back from – attempting to interview Jack's widow. Um, and you were just like on fire because the strangest thing had just happened. Can you recount? Do you remember that day? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that was, we, you know, normally with what we do, we want answers. We want firm answers about what happened. And, um, I was not getting those as I reported this story. Lamont Ponton did not want to talk to us. We tried everything. I got him on the phone um, I tried tracking down his family. He clearly did not want to speak to us. And then uh, Jack Davies, um, I went to his widow's house, knocked on the door, 
and she was there. And I thought for sure she would at least come and see me face to face. And she didn't even come to the door. She just sent me away. And um, I was really upset, I remember, because I, I remember thinking this story is not going to work because we don't know what happened to them. We don't have those answers. And again, I think this is what one of the, the reasons you're such a great editor is that you kind of told me like this, this in, in ways is going to make the story better that we don't have this closure. So do you, do you remember that, that part? I of do. It? I completely remember that. Cause, cause it was such a strange setup, right? Like, cause you had knocked on the door and I think spoke to her brother-in-law who said, Oh, Chloe, hang on, let me get her. I'll, she's she, she lives next door. And they, they, and mm-hmm. you assume she was going to come back and talk to you. And, and in fact, he came back and said, uh, you need to get out of here. Um, and I heard that and I thought that is so much better than anything she could have told you because it goes right to the heart of what we're talking about here, which is an unresolvable mystery. Like that mystery died with Jack, right? Um, and yet it still reverberates with with his widow. Um, and I just thought it was such a powerful kind of... Um, uh, moment to, to evoke the sort of anguish uh, of the mystery, you know? And so I, I was thrilled when they didn't talk to you. I know that's the exact opposite of what editors usually tell you, like get that interview. Um, but I, I thought it was just going to make for such a beautiful and poignant scene, which I think it did. So Matt, you dove back into this probably over a year ago now, right? Like where we started talking to um, the folks at Campside and um, and started realizing, wait, we're going to do a podcast of this. Um, three, four, three years had passed at that point. What were your concerns about diving back in? I mean, I was, I was like, this is going to be boring. That was my biggest concern because, you know, in, in theory, it's like, oh, this is really exciting. It's a podcast. But I was like, I've already reported this story. I've already, you know, scoured um, and, and analyzed and examined and, and really turned over every stone I thought at the time. And so in the very early stages, I, I wasn't super enthusiastic about it because I just thought I was going to be doing the same stuff I had already done, having the same interviews over and over again. Um, but I quickly learned that there was just a lot that we missed the first time around and it was no fault of our own. I mean, you know, we, we did a good job with the story, but this time we just expanded our search. We had um, a bigger team at campsite helping out um, with some of the reporting and um, with a lot of the research. Um, so the research that, that Kim Bikema especially did finding all these tapes and interviews that we didn't even know existed, that just brought this into a whole other stratosphere. Um, you know, we now had interviews with Lamont. We had interviews with Jack Davies, you know, from the 90s. And that was something that we didn't have before. So that that was exciting. I think that's also a good example of something a lot of people don't always realize about, you know, deeply reported long-form journalism, which is that the story can be totally different depending on when you reported it. You know, you could, you could tackle the same story, say, spring of one year versus summer the following. And, and because... You know, the sources you were able to find took you down one direction versus another um, what, because of what you're bringing to the table might be different depending on where, where you are in your life. It could end up being a different story. Um, and I think this was a really good example of that, you know, you, you had the the three years distance of, of knowing what knowing what the story was and almost having the story kind of preserved and done uh, and in your past and then 
you know, wait, you got to sort of excavate it again. And, you know, my favorite part of listening to this podcast and talking to you as you've been working on it has been that has been sort of you seeing like, I could have gone down this whole different direction. And, and I don't know, I'm not the writer. So I don't know, is that is that daunting, overwhelming to feel that way? Yeah, I, you know, it's a, it's a big lesson. It really is. And, you know, it, I, I thought I had been really, really thorough the first time around. And then, you know, Kim and Naomi and, and Emily also were finding like clips that I just didn't know existed. And that it, it was a little humbling and, and a little bit eye-opening because the next time that I report a big story for NJ.com, it's definitely going to be in the back of my mind. Like, what did I miss here? You know, what, what did I not find? What, what clip did I not pull up? Um, you know, there was a whole second broadcast of the game with, from a second crew that I didn't even know existed the first time around, you know? Um, and the, the broadcasters on that call were much more pointed in uh, calling out the mistakes by the referees during the game. So um, it was eye-opening, and honestly, it was a lesson for me that I'm going to carry with me as I, as I move forward in my career that, you know, it's, it's going to give me pause the next time I think I'm done reporting a big story. That's for sure. More after the break. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Did you solve any mysteries that were still lingering for yourself, things you didn't fully understand even after publishing the story that you, you finally figured out this time around? I, I think we did because we really, really just had to drill down even harder than ever before on the final seconds of regulation. Um, and really the mystery was always in this, the, these final, final, um, you know, seven seconds or four seconds or whatever it may be. I don't think I understood it even as well as I do now after going through it again. And I think part of that is probably that when you're explaining it for audio, it just has to be even more crystal clear because, you know, you can write it a certain way and, and it's easy for someone to digest, but, but when you're trying to get someone to hear it and digest it in that same manner, I think it's, it's a little more challenging. Um, and I think also having that second broadcast was really illuminating because we had um, one of the broadcasters, Dick Zimmer, 
was really spelling out this ready for play call that came at 29 seconds. And, and after the ready for play, then that means 25 seconds comes off the clock. And he called that out on the broadcast. And that's when it really like crystallized in my head. Okay. I know exactly what that means. They set the ball at 29 seconds, 25 should have come off. That means four seconds are left, but instead the referees put seven. So again, this all sounds very confusing as I even listen to myself re- recount it, but I feel like I know this story so incredibly well now. I remember there was a day in, in our offices where I, there must have been like four or five editors and you and a whiteboard trying to make sense of the, of the five, the four yes. seconds, you know, like, wait, where did, where did the four seconds get lost? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's so gratifying that you found that second broadcast because so much of this is all lost to, you know, mm-hmm. to, um, to history and to, you know, all you have left is, is maybe some news, newspaper accounts, but um, mostly you have a lot of fault, you know, different people's faulty memories at this point. Um, what's still the white whale for you? I mean, I know you, you, you know, we've never been able to, to track down Lamont, but are there, are there other sort of strands of this story that you still wish you could have gotten to or gotten further under the hood of? Yeah, I, I think that the, one of the biggest challenge this time around after, you know, re-reporting a story that has already been out there is that a lot of people declined my interviews this time around because they just didn't want to go through it again. Um, you know, we were really thorough with our interviews the first time around. I mean, just like there, there were certain sources that I interviewed probably like six or seven times. And I, I, I just think a lot of them didn't want to go through that again. So there were some really, really key players that um, would not talk to me this time around. And, and that's, that really sucked. Um, and then just Lamont. I mean, I, I would really, you know, do just about anything, um, you know, to, to, to see him face to face and to talk to him. I even um, Montclair just played a game a couple of weeks ago and they were playing East orange. And um, I've been told that he probably lives in East orange. So just on the whim that he might be there, I went to that game and I just, scanned the the bleachers you know looked at every face over and over again Hmm. he was not there but i i um you know i i really just would like to get his perspective um and getting his brother this time around was really really illuminating i mean we spoke to him for about two hours and there's you know i really hope that some good comes of this for lamont and his family um because the one thing that's really become crystal clear also is just like the impact that he has had on so many people, you know, his teammates still speak so highly of him and what a leader he was and what he meant to them and that team. And, um, you know, they're here for him now if he ever needs anything. So that's something that I also think about, you know, pretty often. If you only had the opportunity to ask him one question, what would it be? I mean, it sounds simple, but how did that loss impact you? Did it change your life? You know, that's that's the big question I have. Had you won that game, would things have turned out differently for you? You know, that's kind of the fundamental question I've asked a lot of these people, and, and that's that's the one I would have for him too, I think. And where do you land on that question? It's got to be impossible to answer that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has been... Uh, for, for his mother when I interviewed her. But, you know, when I, when we interviewed his brother, his brother said, yes, it did change his life. And, you know, it's impossible to know if that's true or not, but um, 
a lot of people still believe that to this day. And I think that's why the story has been so powerful for so many people. I, I think that had Montclair won that game, just the high that would have enveloped the town, you know, really could have um, buoyed a lot of those guys to bigger and better things. That That's what I really believe. I mean, I just think that there's a chance winning that game would have had them finish possibly even number one in the nation. And then what? I mean, then we're talking, you know, television features, you know, maybe they're on like ESPN, um, you know, maybe they're in national magazines. Then, you know, the recruiters from bigger colleges are really putting Montclair High School on the map. I, I really think that maybe not all of them, but I, I definitely think it would have changed some of their lives. I think what's so powerful about this is it boils down to four seconds, right? And it wasn't right. Like it, it's just, it, it, it doubly, triply brings home this idea of um, how fragile our fate is, you know, and how far beyond our, our control it is. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a great way to put it. And it's hard to not think of all these, these movies, sliding doors, the butterfly effect, but just how these, these moments can really change your life. And, you know, I, th- I think about that a lot too. I mean, even, you know, when it comes to something as simple as, you know, when I got hired by the star ledger, they, they hired a bunch of people in the sports department. And I was, I think they hired five and I was the fifth and final hire. <laughs> and, and it was very close to like me not making that cut. And if I don't get hired by the star ledger, I don't meet my wife. I don't have the three kids that I have now. I don't get to work for you and have this great story and this wonderful podcast. I mean, there's, there's so many, you know, I, I have thought about that in the course of this story. What was different about approaching it as, as an audio project versus, you know, a 7,000 word written feature. I imagine a whole lot. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because, you know, I was, I always told Emily and, and the people at Camp Town, I'm like, I think I'm a pretty conversational writer to begin with, you know, like this isn't going to be hard transitioning. <laughs> you know, I, I write how I talk. Right. And then it's like the first line I described uh, Pete Sedarius as having coiffed hair. And they're like, <laughs> when is the last time you ever said someone had coiffed hair? <laughs> it's like, so, okay. So maybe this is going to be harder than I thought. Um, so I, 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 yeah, again, I think I thought that I, uh, you know, wrote conversationally, but it, it just podcasting takes it to a new level where you really understand the difference between how you write and how you speak. Um, so that was something that took some time to, to uh, get used to. Um, and just understanding, you know, how, how to frame a story and, and audio and, you, you know, you really have to lean on those quotes, um, you know, like never before. And, it changes the way that you ask questions. Um, you know, we like to write vividly and with lots of detail to begin with, but again, podcasting takes it to a whole new level. So, um, you know, I, I learned piece by piece. I mean, luckily this wasn't like something I had to turn around in a couple months and I had more time to work on it. So it was a, a big learning experience kind of at every turn. What was it like learning to be a host? I mean, you've been interviewed on radio shows for, about your stories yeah. and stuff, but but this is a whole different ball game. Yeah, that was. I mean, you remember? You heard my first draft. <laughs> it was a little stiff. It was a little. You're like, is this is this a map problem or is this a script? <laughs> um, it was. I told people it was the hardest thing in journalism I've ever had to do was to you know to get 
to learn how to, to talk or read and, and not sound like I'm reading. Um, you know, they kept saying, you're, you're, you're going up on this word. You're, you're ending your sentences, you know, pitching up. And I was like, I don't hear it. Um, so I think it took me like three solid sessions. And then I really started to, to pick up how to do it. Um, and I'm really actually proud of, um, you know, how, how well I picked it up because a lot of the compliments I've gotten from people are how good I sound, which is like, you know, just mind blowing to me, especially at the beginning with uh, how bad I sounded. But, you know, it, campsite's credit, man, they have an awesome studio. It's a very comfortable place. And uh, the coaches are, are really good. They, they have a lot of good snacks, a lot of caffeine drinks, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of tricks like eating apples and, you know, this and that. So hot tea. Um, so, you know, it, it, I, it, I got there eventually. Do you now find yourself occasionally slipping into your podcast voice? <laughs> it's hard. With your wife and children? You know, like Austin Butler couldn't stop talking like Elvis for a year and a half. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I, I'd be lying. I mean, I, you have two little kids. I have three little kids. It's, I, I think I'm just yelling at home mostly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> One day it'll come in handy, but for now it's just like, uh, you know, lift the toilet seat, you know, pick up <laughs> the shoes, that kind of thing. So, um, Matt, what's next for you as your editor? I want to know what your next story is going to be. Oh man, you and me both, right? <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm I'm starting to get that question from some people, um, but yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, podcasting has been really, really fun, you know, but everything that we do is pretty fun, you know, from um, Pickleball, before that, a very personal project about my friend Jay, and I kind of want to do something different again, you know? Yeah, totally. Me too. I agree. Lights Out is a production of Campside Media and Entertainment One in association with NJ Advanced Media and XTR. This series was reported and hosted by me, Matt Stanmeyer. Naomi Brauner is the senior producer, and Kim Baikuma is the associate producer. Additional production support from Natalia Winkleman and Campside senior producer, Lindsay Kilbride. Our story editor and executive producer is Emily Martinez. Mixing, sound design, and original music by Ewan Leitremuen. Additional engineering from Blake Rook. This series was fact-checked by Lauren Vispoli and Matt Giles. Special thanks to Robert Fox, Chris Kelly, Steve Politti, Anthony Pacillo, Jeff McGrath, and Paul Spahala. A special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, and Destiny Dingle. Our executive producers are Lee Eisenberg from A Piece of Work, Justin Lacob from XTR, and from Campside Media, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed Lights Out, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 